the closest thing to a modern-day prophet that I think I've ever heard is a man named Paul Washer. When I try to imagine what Jeremiah would have been like, what it would have been like to hear Jeremiah preach, I imagine it being something like sitting under Paul Washer's preaching. I was in seminary when I first ran across his name. Washer arose to national prominence in 2008 when a sermon that he had preached actually six years prior was uploaded to a then brand new online video platform called YouTube. Washer preached that now famous sermon, or infamous depending on your point of view, in 2002 to some 5,000 students and adults at the Alabama State Youth Evangelism Conference in Montgomery, Alabama. Almost nine years later now, in 2017, from the time that it was uploaded to YouTube, the sermon has been viewed worldwide nearly two million times. Prior to that sermon, Washer was a largely unknown missionary in Peru. In other words, those students and adult sponsors in attendance that day had no idea what they were in for. After opening in prayer, in which he pleaded with God to grant repentance and faith to his hearers, Washer stood before the auditorium with that classic pained expression on his face, and he read Matthew 7, 13 to 27, and then he opened with these words. I stand here today, and I'm not troubled in my heart about your self-esteem. I'm not troubled in my heart about whether or not you feel good about yourself, whether or not life is turning out how you wanted it to, or whether or not your checkbook is balanced. There's only one thing that gave me a sleepless night. There's only one thing that troubled me all throughout the morning, and it is this. Within a hundred years, a great majority of people in this building will possibly be in hell. And many who even profess Jesus Christ as Lord will spend an eternity in hell. You say, Pastor, how can you say such a thing? I can say such a thing because I don't do my Christian work in America. I spend most of my time preaching in South America, in Africa, in Eastern Europe. And I want you to know that when you take a look at American Christianity, it is based more upon a godless culture than it is upon the Word of God. And so many people are deceived, and so many youth are deceived, and so many adults are deceived into believing that because they prayed a prayer one time in their life, they're going to heaven. And then when they look around at others who profess to know Christ and see those people who are just as worldly as the world, and they compare themselves by themselves, nothing troubles their heart. They think, well, I'm the same as everyone else in my youth group. I watch things I shouldn't watch on television. I laugh at the very things that God hates. I wear clothing that is sensual. I talk like the world. I walk like the world. I love the music of the world. I love so much that's in the world, but bless God, I'm a Christian. Why am I a Christian? I don't look any different than most of the people in my church. Why am I a Christian? Because there was a time in my life when I prayed and asked Jesus Christ to come into my heart. I want you to know that the greatest heresy in the American evangelical and Protestant church is that if you pray and ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart, he definitely will come in. 
You will not find that in any place in Scripture. You will not find that anywhere in Baptist history until about 50 years ago. What you need to know is that, is that salvation is by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ, and faith alone in Jesus Christ is preceded and followed by repentance, a turning away from sin, a hatred for the things that God hates, and a love for the things that God loves, a growing in holiness and a desire not to be like Britney Spears. That would have made much more sense in 2002 than it does now. Not to be like the world and not to be like the great majority of American Christians, but to be like Jesus Christ. Now, at that point, the whole auditorium erupts in applause, to which Washer responds, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. I didn't come here to get amens. I didn't come here to be applauded. I'm talking about you. And for the next 50 minutes, Washer unloaded on them Matthew chapter 7 and the devastating truth that a tree is known by its fruits. That repentance and a transformed life are the necessary evidence of regeneration and true saving faith. And that most of those within the sound of his voice were in all likelihood unconverted and would be among the number to whom the Lord Jesus would say on the last day, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. That's the way prophets speak. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, a prophet leaves his hearers both intensely captivated and profoundly disturbed. Now, I relate that story to you because I imagine that's the effect John the Baptist had upon the masses to whom he preached. Listen to some of the statements that came out of John's mouth as he preached in the wilderness by the Jordan River to the people of Israel in the first century. Luke 3, verse 7. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, from these very stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's prophet speech. Kent Hughes imagines the scene like this. He says, hundreds and later thousands at the height of John's ministry, seated along the Jordan, listening as John excoriated them, warning of judgment, speaking to individual sins, naming names, calling for social justice and repentance. Finally, when they were convicted, they formed endless lines to be baptized as a sign that they were repenting of their sins. This is the one who became simply known as the baptizer. This is the one whom Jesus called more than a prophet and the greatest of those born among women. And it is with the emergence of John in the wilderness of Judea that Mark begins his gospel. So this morning, I want us to look at verses 2 through 11 and the three baptisms which we find in this opening passage in Mark's gospel, looking in particular, here's what we're going for. 
We want to look at these three baptisms that are mentioned and see what each has to say about who it is that enters the kingdom and about how it is that they enter the kingdom. So we'll begin with the baptism of John the Baptist. So after that opening title, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in verse 1, Mark begins his gospel really in the same way that he writes his entire gospel, abruptly. Mark does not provide a birth narrative telling us where Jesus came from like Matthew and Luke do. He doesn't doesn't begin with a theological prologue explaining to us who Jesus is, the eternal word of God like John does. He just launches right into the event that inaugurated Jesus' public ministry. Mark introduces John the Baptist with a composite quotation comprised of three Old Testament prophecies that that Mark pulled out of the Old Testament and mashed together to form one prophetic statement. Okay, the three prophecies come from Exodus 23.20, Malachi 3.1, and Isaiah 40 in verse 3. And because Isaiah is the most prominent of these prophets, he, he just ascribes the quotation to him. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. This trilogy of quotations summarizes the Old Testament hope that before the day of the Lord comes, before the Lord himself appears in salvation and judgment, there would come a latter-day messenger, a latter-day prophet who would prepare Israel to meet their God by calling them to repentance and to faith. That was the hope of the Old Testament. There would come a prophet, there would come a messenger who would prepare the people of God before the appearance of the Lord. Now, if you'll remember back from our study of Malachi a few years back, those of you who were with us, the last prophetic word to Israel before 400 years of silence specified that this latter-day messenger, this voice crying in the wilderness and calling the people to prepare the way of the Lord would be none other than the prophet Elijah. Malachi 3, 1 and 4, 5 and 6 says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's the verse that Mark quotes. Then chapter 4, Malachi says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Okay, so this expectation, the people of Israel had this expectation that before the Messiah came, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, there would come Elijah the prophet to prepare the people for the Lord's arrival. And this expectation was only heightened by the fact that 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 11 records that Elijah did not die, but rather was assumed bodily into heaven in chariots of fire. So, The common Israelite in the first century expected Elijah, the prophet, to make a reappearance in the wilderness to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. Well, suddenly John appears. The angel of the Lord had appeared to the priest named Zechariah as he was in the temple and announced that his wife Elizabeth was going to bear a son and that they were to name him John. 
Luke 1.14, the angel of the Lord says to him, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of of Elijah. Okay, so you see what just happened? The angel of the Lord is linking this impending birth of John with the prophecy from Malachi. So the forerunner of the Messiah is this baby that Elizabeth is about to have, whom they are to name John. All right, he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Well, then some 30 years later, John appears seemingly out of nowhere in the wilderness of Judea. Mark 1 and verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt about his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right, three important points about John and his baptism that I think will help us understand his ministry in the wilderness. All right, number one, John was that latter-day prophet promised in the Old Testament whose appearance would precede the coming of the Lord. John was the Elijah promised in Malachi. Not literally, he wasn't a reincarnation of Elijah, but figuratively, that's why the angel of the Lord, when he spoke to Zechariah, said that, that this one, this prophet, would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Jesus confirmed John's identity as this latter-day prophet in Matthew chapter 11 and Mark chapter 9 when he said, For all of the prophets and all of the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. And John was aware of his own identity as that latter-day prophet, this forerunner of the Messiah. He knew he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's how he identified himself. When the Pharisees and and the elders of the people and the scribes came out to the Jordan and said, who are you? Are you the Messiah? This is recorded in John 1. John said, I am not the Messiah. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness preparing the people for the Lord. This is why he dresses like Elijah. This is why he is found in a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt eating locusts and wild honey. He's self-aware that he's that latter-day prophet, and he knows what he's been called to do. He is here to bring the people of Israel to repentance and to prepare them for the coming of the Lord. Second, John's mission was to prepare the people for the Lord's coming by calling them to repent. John's preaching and ministry was all about repentance. This was symbolized in his very location. Why the desert? Why the wilderness? Why not 
Why not Jerusalem? That's where all the people are. Why does he appear in the desert? I think it's symbolic. Those who would be prepared for the coming of the Lord must come out to him. They need to come out of Jerusalem. They need to come out of the apostate temple system with all of its materialism. They need to come out of the legalistic, pharisaic understanding of the law. They need to come out of Israel, which did not know their God, and they needed to come out to meet the Lord in the wilderness. So he's calling them out to the wilderness as in the days of old. That's where the prophets prophesied all throughout. They were in the wilderness and the people had to go out to them. And John is just the last and greatest in a long prophetic line of people calling Israel to repentance. William Lane wrote a great commentary on the Gospel of Mark. He says, quote, The summons to be baptized in the Jordan meant that Israel must come once more to the wilderness. As Israel long ago had been separated from Egypt by a pilgrimage through the waters of the Red Sea, the nation is once again exhorted to experience separation. The people are called to a second exodus in preparation for a new covenant with God. In other words, Israel had become like Egypt. And if you wanted to be ready for the Lord's appearing, you needed to come out. And as Jeremiah had spoken Six centuries earlier, Jeremiah 31, 31, the new covenant that the Lord was coming to establish, it wasn't going to be a renewal of the old covenant. It wasn't going to be like the old covenant which God forged with Israel at Mount Sinai. It was going to be the establishment of a new covenant with a new nation, a nation that is not formed along ethnic lines, a nation that is not marked by external adherence to rituals and law, but a people, a multinational People from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation created by the Spirit through repentance and faith. That's why Jeremiah said when he prophesied of the coming of the new covenant, he said, it's not going to be like the old covenant that I formed with you, at, established with you at Mount Sinai, but in the new covenant they will all know me because you're not in the new covenant unless you repent and believe on Jesus. Thirdly, this preparation through repentance and faith in the coming Lord was signified by baptism. Now, as far as we know, nothing like John's baptism had ever been done in Israel. This is why John was known throughout Israel as simply the baptizer. He was the one who baptizes. He wasn't one among many who baptizes. He was the baptizer. Now again, William Lane writes, those who heard John would not have failed to recognize the familiar prophetic call to repentance. What John was saying had been said before, but in response to his preaching, John called for an action which was wholly novel, baptism in the Jordan River. Mark states, look at verse 4 very closely, a couple of things I want to draw out of there. Mark states that this baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and that it was accompanied by an outward, verbal, public confession. The word there in the Greek is ex homo legumenoi. It's a big, long Greek word, but it's comprised of three parts, okay? You can follow this, you can impress your friends at lunch, right? Ex means out from, 
Homo means same, and lego means to say. So it's to say out the same thing as God, to agree with him outward. That ek on the beginning of it means that it was, it was professed confession. This was not a private act. Everything about this baptism was public. The people were coming, and in their act of coming, they are saying, I Child of Abraham, I need to be saved. I need to repent. I need to be rescued. I know that being an Israelite, being a child of Abraham, will not save me in the coming judgment. I need grace. I need forgiveness. I need renewal. I need a Messiah. This is how people were prepared for the coming of the Lord, and that's how people meet the Lord today. Surely you can recognize a similarity there because you and I, we must say something very similar. I need to be saved. I need to be rescued. I understand that having Christian parents and growing up in a Christian home and belonging to a Christian church, I understand that those things will not rescue me from the coming judgment. I need grace. I need forgiveness. I need a Messiah. So let's summarize then what we can learn from John's baptism. All right, John's baptism was the precursor of the baptism that we observe in the New Covenant Church. It was preceded by John's preaching of repentance and the imminent arrival of the Messiah, verse 7, who would bring salvation to the faithful and judgment upon the faithless. Those who believed John's preaching repented of their sin and signified their repentance by making a public confession and receiving baptism in the Jordan River. So having believed the gospel of the coming Lord, having repented of their sins, and having been baptized, they were now ready for the Lord's appearance. Which happens then in verse 9. In those days... In the days when John was preaching about the coming of the Lord and the need for the people of Israel to repent, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, the other Gospels record more of this interaction between Jesus and John at the Jordan River. Matthew, for instance, records that when Jesus came to him, John protested Jesus' request for baptism. And he said, no, Lord, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Luke records, or John rather, records John's identification of Jesus as the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But Mark, as is his method, simply records the fact that Jesus was baptized by John in the River Jordan. But that raises the question in the mind of the reader, why? Why is Jesus being baptized? If John's baptism is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, 
why does the sinless one who needs no repentance nor forgiveness, why does he come to be baptized? The answer has to do with Jesus' ministry of substitution. When Jesus comes to John, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew records that when Jesus comes to John and, and says, I want you to baptize me. And John says, no, Lord, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus' response is really interesting. He says, permit it now, for it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And when Jesus said that, John consented because he understood what Jesus meant. See, Jesus was on a mission of redemption, and at the core of this redemptive mission was substitution. Jesus had come not to be merely an example for sinners, but to stand in the place of sinners as their substitute. And he was to stand in the place of sinners, not only in his death on the cross, but also in his life of righteousness and obedience. Through John, God was calling the people of Israel to repentance. He was calling them out of the old covenant and into a new covenant relationship with himself, signified in baptism. So as the perfect representative Israelite, as the perfect man, as the second Adam, Jesus heeded God's call and went out with the rest of Israel in order to be baptized. And so with his baptism, the substitutionary work of Jesus is begun. At his baptism, he begins to fulfill all righteousness on behalf of who? Us. At his baptism, what you are watching transpire in verses 9 through 11 is the beginning of your substitute doing all things well. And becoming your righteousness. John MacArthur writes, in the first act of his ministry, the one who had no sin publicly identified himself with those who had no righteousness. But what is of more concern or seems to be of more concern to Mark than Jesus' actual baptism is what happened next. Verses 10 to 11 describe three signs which for Mark confirm Jesus' messianic identity and mission. Now, I haven't mentioned it yet, but something you're going to need to know as we go on throughout the Gospel of Mark, and now seems as good a time as any to establish this, is that I think Mark's favorite passage of the Bible was Isaiah 40 to 66. He seems to pattern his gospel after those servant songs that are found in the latter portion of Isaiah that talk about the coming of the Messiah, his vicarious sufferings, his glorious resurrection, and the salvation that he would bring to all of the nations. I think that if Mark were able to pick any scroll off the shelf, he was picking the second scroll of Isaiah. And the reason why that's important here is because verses 10 and 11 contain numerous allusions to passages from Isaiah 40 to 66. And if you're going to understand what happens in his baptism, you need to understand that what happens in verses 10 and 11 was prophesied eight centuries earlier by Isaiah. So first, the heavens were torn open. Schizomenus. It's 
the word from which we get schism or schizophrenia, dividing of personalities. This is a strong word. The other, the other, the other evangelists say that the heavens opened. Mark says they were torn open. They were ripped open. They were, see if you, see if you can recognize this, rent open. Isaiah 64.1 prophesied, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Interesting fact, the only other time that, John, that Mark rather uses that verb is in Mark 15.38 in reference to the veil. When the veil was rent in two, torn in two from top to bottom. So if you're kind of into the unity of the Scriptures and see how that magnifies the glory of God, Mark begins his gospel with a rending of the heavens and a declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. And Mark ends his gospel with a rending of the curtain and a declaration by the Roman centurion, truly this was the Son of God. Mark's a good author. And by the way, the rending of the temple is, that's the end to which all of this gospel is heading. And when we get there in about a year, that is full of so much beautiful significance for our salvation. Second, okay, not only were the heavens torn open, but the Spirit descended upon, interestingly, literally into Jesus like a dove. This is the fulfillment of the words of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Same text that Jesus chose when he was in the synagogue of Nazareth, when he had returned from his temptations and baptism in Galilee, when he unrolled the prophet, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and read this and said, Today in your hearing... These words are fulfilled. Thirdly, a voice from heaven. Okay, so the heavens are torn open. Spirit descends on or into Jesus in the form of a dove. Then a voice from heaven says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Isaiah 42.1 Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Or Isaiah 49, 3, where the Lord tells his servant, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So Jesus' baptism marks the beginning of his redemptive mission. It marks the beginning of his messianic ministry, a ministry of substitution to fulfill all righteousness, that will end in the salvation of the nations. Well, there is one more baptism mentioned in this passage, and it comes from verses 7 and 8. It's the baptism with or of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus gives to those who repent and believe. So verse 7, And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
I want you to remember to whom John is speaking when he says these words. He is speaking to Israelites who have come out to the wilderness, have come out of apostate Israel, have come out of a defiled temple cult, who have believed his message of the necessity of repentance and of the coming Messiah, who have repented of their sins and confessed their sins and have received his baptism. That's his audience. And to this audience, John says that another baptizer is coming and that his baptism will supersede John's own baptism. John can only baptize with water, but the coming one, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John says, I can only offer the symbol. One is coming who will offer the full reality. So what is this reality? What is this baptism with the Holy Spirit? Well, I don't know what kind of church background you come out of, um, but this is, well, this is a hot-button issue in a lot of circles. The answer to the question is more complex than I think many Baptists give it credit for, but uh, it's not our purpose this morning to, wave, to wade deeply into that debate. Rather, I'm going to tell you what is generally agreed upon, this is my view, and it's generally agreed upon by the historic Reformed Protestant faith. I think this is a reference to the regenerating, renewing, purifying, transforming, life-giving ministry of the Holy Spirit that Jesus performs on everyone who is included in the new covenant. See, God had promised through the prophet Ezekiel that in the new covenant... I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. He could have said, and with the spirit, the spirit I will baptize you. I will put it within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. I will baptize you with my spirit and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then when Jesus appeared, the mightier one of whom John is unworthy to untie the strap of his sandals, in John chapter 3, he has a very interesting conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus where he, he speaks of this experience, this new covenant gift as being born again, being born from above, being born of the Spirit. Paul spoke about this baptism with the Spirit in Titus chapter 3 when he said that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So here's what John's talking about. He says, you've come out to me. You believed my message. You've repented of your sins. You've been baptized for the forgiveness of sins in preparation for the coming of the Lord. But I'm telling you, when the Lord comes, he's going to baptize you in a way that I can only speak of. I baptize with water. He is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Matthew adds, and with 
fire. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the new birth in which the Holy Spirit awakens us from spiritual death and raises us to spiritual life and washes us with his purifying grace and transforms us into new creatures in Christ. People who believe the gospel and through faith are justified before God. To be baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit is to be a Christian. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not baptized in the Spirit. And this is only something that Jesus can do. John could only wash sinners with water. Jesus can wash sinners in the Holy Spirit. All John had was the sign. Jesus has the reality. This morning, you and I, we, we are as the Israelites who stood that day on the banks of the Jordan listening to the voice of the prophet. That's us. The essential message has not changed. The only difference is that today, I'm not calling you to prepare yourself for a Messiah who hasn't yet appeared. I'm calling you, every one of you, to a Messiah who has already come, died, been risen, ascended on high, and who is coming again. But I'm calling you to prepare yourself for his coming in the very same way that John did. So listen well this morning. There are three messages that you must hear from the voice of the Baptist. Number one, you must repent. Repentance is still necessary. It is still essential if you would be among those people who are prepared for the Lord's appearing. The message of repentance did not end with John. As we will see next week, it continued as Jesus began his public ministry. Look down at verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, what's he saying? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The message of repentance continued with the apostles. When Peter preached at Pentecost, he concluded his sermon by saying, Repent! Men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent! And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was true in John's day. It was true in Jesus' day. It was true in the time of the apostles. And it is true for you today. If you would be forgiven of your sin and saved from the judgment and the wrath to come, you must repent. Metanoia. It's a change of our mind that leads to a transformation of our life. Repentance means that you need to change your mind about who you are. You need to change the way that you view yourself. You are not, we are not basically good people who have a few minor flaws. We are by nature diseased trees incapable of bearing anything but diseased fruit. 
The Bible says, in fact, that we are so thoroughly corrupted by sin in every part of our being that we are incapable of producing an ounce of real Godward righteousness. And if you would be forgiven of your sin, you need to come to the point of understanding and embracing that. Repentance means not only that you change your mind about who you are, you change your mind about what you've done. Sin is not a minor flaw that God will surely overlook in the day of judgment. Sin is an act of rebellion against a sovereign king that that king hates. Sin is a cyanide-laced indulgence that is killing your soul. So do not be deceived by this form of Christianity so prevalent in our culture which views faith as merely a construct of the mind that has little to no effect on the way we actually live. That's not biblical faith and it will not save. You must repent. The second message to you this morning is you must be baptized. John was not content with a private repentance, was he? He demanded that a new direction of life be made public. Why? Because there is no such thing as private repentance. And there is no such thing as a private disciple. And so he called the crowds not only to repent, but also to signify their repentance with baptism accompanied by an outward confession of sin. Now again, baptism did not end with John. John was not the only person to demand that those who repented be baptized. Jesus continued to call for baptism upon profession of faith and repentance. To be a disciple, a follower of Christ, you must be a baptized believer. That's what a disciple is. If you're not a baptized believer, you're not a disciple of Christ. So if you've never been baptized, if you're here, you believe what I'm saying, repentance is beginning to bear its fruit in your life, but you've never been baptized like Megan, from your story this morning, then you need to come see me after this service. Get in touch with me some way. And let me know that you want to be obedient to Christ's call to be baptized. And I'll tell you exactly what we'll do. We'll meet together one-on-one. It'll take a couple of hours. We'll talk about the gospel. We'll talk about what baptism is, why we do it, what it means, how we do it. We'll help you write your testimony. We'll videotape your testimony and we'll play it up here on the day of your baptism. And then on that day, we'll baptize you here, not at the Jordan River, but before the gathered saints of God. You must be baptized. There is no such thing as an unbaptized disciple of Jesus. Finally, Here's the third message to you. You must be born again. 
all I can do is baptize you with water, which is meaningless if it is not preceded by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, repentance will be superficial and short-lived apart from the regenerating work of the Spirit. So before all else, you must be born again. And this is the very thing you can't do. How does that work? How does God command me to do something that I can't do? Ah, that's the point. Father, use this ransomed life in any way you choose and let my song forever be my only boast is you. Why don't you think about it this way? You can do about as much to bring about the new birth as a baby can to make itself be conceived in its mother's womb and to cause its own delivery. So what do you do? Okay, you're here this morning. This is ringing true somewhere deep down inside. What, what do you do if you can't do it? What do you do when the one thing you need is the one thing you cannot achieve? Listen to me very closely. You cast yourself in utter helplessness upon the mercy of the Son of God. You throw yourself upon His compassion for sinners and you ask Him to do what only he can do. You ask him to wash your soul in regenerating, cleansing, purifying power of the Spirit. And I promise you that if you go out to the Spirit baptizer like the Israelites went out to John the Baptist, you will not find him unwilling to save. You will not call out to the heavens and hear no response because that's why he came. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That was the point of his coming. And so when he calls you to repent and believe and he says, you must be born again. And when by the power of the Spirit you are drawn to him and you say, I need that baptism which I can't make happen. I need the Spirit. I need to be cleansed. I'm filthy. I'm depraved. I'm headed for hell. I need to be rescued and only you can do it. You will find him a savior full of compassion and mercy and grace no matter what you've done or who you are or where you come from. That's why he came. He doesn't call any but sinners. So cast yourself this morning upon his grace, cry out for his spirit, and keep doing so until, with confidence, you can rise up believing that you have been born again and made a new creation in Christ. So what do you do? You call on Jesus. You go to Jesus until he makes you new. 
and then you come to me, and I'll baptize you. It's the way we make disciples around here. It's the only way disciples have been made for 2,000 years. What do you do? Go to Jesus until he baptizes you with the Spirit. Come to me, and I'll baptize you in his name in water. And you'll be forgiven of your sin, and you'll become a recipient of everlasting life. 